You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. I wanted to open with a question. Uh, We're preaching today from Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Uh, It is probably not the passage that I would have picked uh, if I were to pick any sort of uh, passages out of Mark, because we're going to be looking at today uh, God's teaching for us on both marriage and divorce. And I think what you're going to see is that he has this wonderful purpose for us uh, throughout many different signs within Scripture, and marriage is included in that. So I wanted to start by asking, are you a person who lives with purpose? According to a recent article in Forbes magazine, purpose is the belief that your life matters, that you make a difference. It's the sense of being guided by meaningful values and goals. The article goes on to say, and of course urge business leaders, that your workers will generate much more productivity for you if you give them a sense of purpose, a feeling that they're part of a greater mission. You'll actually have less depression, less anxiety. You'll make better healthcare decisions. Empirically, you'll have less cardiovascular disease. And probably as a result, there's statistically lower mortality to people who live, well, mortality is 100%, but people live longer when they have a sense of purpose. Purposeless, on the other hand, can rob us of our motivation. I recall way, way back in college when I took the core psychology class learning of a cruel medical experiment in one of the Nazi concentration camps where they took the strongest, healthiest prisoners and they had them large, move a large pile of rocks from one side of the yard to the other side. The next day, they were instructed to move that pile of rocks back to the original resting place. The next day, to the other side, and then back again. The purpose of the experiment was to see how long it would take for despair to set in with purposelessness. It was an indefinite exercise in futility, and it didn't take long before the strongest, healthiest prisoners chose to disobey their orders under penalty of immediate execution rather than continue in the purposelessness they uh, were willing to give up what hope they had of surviving their ordeal because it had been extinguished by this purposelessness today in our text Jesus reveals that it's not only important that we have purpose but that our purposes be informed by God's purposes and when we don't have our purposes informed by God's purposes we can be led to despair In Mark 10, 1 through 12, Jesus shows God's purposes for both marriage and divorce. But his teaching shows way more than that. It shows the general principle that when we understand his purposes expressed through his laws, we see his character. When we see his character through his word, it allows us to experience him more fully. And then we become more fully human. That brings me to today's big idea. Let God's purposes inform your heart. 
so that you can more fully experience his faithfulness and mercy. Let God's purposes inform your heart so that you can more experience his faithfulness and mercy. Point one we'll see is don't test God, but see his character so you can grow in character. Then we'll look at if we see God's character in divorce and and marriage, we will better understand both God and marriage. Point three will be to trust the gospel to redeem and restore God's intended purposes. Our text begins today with Jesus' disciples going out of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. The point that Mark is making here is that Jesus is now closing this phase and he's turning decisively to move towards Jerusalem where in a few days, if not weeks, he will be completing his passion for us. And it's not surprising that the Pharisees, as Jesus teaches, show up once again. Look with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10, and I think it'll also be on the screen. Uh, If you don't have your own Bible, there's one on the floor in front of you or in the seat back. That would be our church's desire for you to be able to take that and have that for your own copy of God's Word. Mark 10, 1 through 12 reads, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, remember, the pervasive theme through Mark is that everyone, including both the disciples and the religious leaders, have been completely missing the point of God's purposes for Christ to come here on earth. Jesus has been creating many, many problems for the religious leaders uh, to include healing on the Sabbath in violation of their law, to include raising the dead, uh, which is interesting that their response to to, uh, Jesus raising the dead later when he raises Lazarus was, oh my gosh, if he keeps doing stuff like this, people might believe in him. Like, maybe they should. Uh, That's a little side note. But Jesus has been creating many problems, and their responses have have caused Jesus to say, listen, you guys, when Isaiah says they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, that's you. You guys, in order to establish your own traditions, throw out God's purposes. Mark makes it clear here that the Pharisees weren't coming to receive teaching from Jesus about divorce and marriage. They were coming, he says, to test him. Now, we're not sure of the motives for this test. 
It could be, and probably was, that they wanted to have Jesus say something that was going to criticize Herod's unlawful marriage to Herodias that we learned about just a couple weeks ago, and in doing so, increase the chances that he too could join John the Baptist with his head on a bladder. Or it could be that they just wanted to stir up division amongst Jesus' followers. Now, that division would be rooted in a controversy of the day uh, with, that started with Deuteronomy 24, where the Jewish leaders uh, were debating what it meant uh, for how a, per, how, how a person could send away their wife. See, there was two schools of thoughts, and it's, it uh, stemmed from a debate among the rabbis, meaning or which uh, involved, here's the law that Moses gave, and the debate centered around the term uncleanness. What does uncleanness mean? You see, there was two divisions. The most conservative sect was saying, well, no, uncleanness is simply limited to sexual immorality. And if she has done that, then you can send her away with a a, a certificate of divorce. (laughs) But there was others, there was others who said, no, 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 no. Uh, Uncleanness is much more broad than that. Uncleanness means any any indiscretion, such as a spoiled dish of food, if she spun in the streets, if she talked to a strange man, if she was a brawling woman, which is defined as the neighbors can hear her talk from her house. There was even some who said, and it goes so far as to say, if basically, if he finds someone else more appealing, that's uncleanness. Not surprising, the latter, more more permissive view had become the culture's practice. It even had gotten to the point where some were saying it was your religious duty to divorce your wife if she was unpleasing because otherwise the husband would be tolerating sin. Imagine that. They were at the point where they claimed God required divorce in order to preserve holiness. What does that say about their disposition of their hearts? Mark's statement here that they came to test him tells us what their disposition was. Is it not ironic that the people who were missing the point about God's purposes through Christ were the ones that came to test When a person gives a test, it implies that they have taught the material and understand it more than the person being tested. The Pharisees are so sure that they know God that they have come to test Jesus. Look at Jesus' response in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? He asks them what the scriptures teach. This is important because Jesus assumes that they have what they need to answer their own question. We need to think about this. When you're faced with a moral question, do you ask what the scriptures teach? (laughs) Many times my first impulse is simply to trust the traditions that I've been taught. Sort of a complacent, this is the way we do it. But remember, we love our traditions and we forsake the law. Could it be that we, like, our, like the Pharisees, are products of our environment who look at our circumstances through the eyes of our culture? And I'm not just talking about that culture. I'm talking about church culture. 
I'm talking about family culture. Whether it's secular or church culture, when we're faced with a dilemma, our default position can sometimes be to just do what's acceptable to the culture that we roll in. And we don't even know that. But there's another layer of their question, too. When we do ask, what has God said? Do we really want to know the answer? Or do we just want to justify our position? If we do, we're here to test him. Do we consult our inner lawyer to build our case? You see, when Jesus asked the Pharisees what Moses commanded, they answered from Scripture. But their answer was conspicuously incomplete, wasn't it? Although they quoted Moses, they also neglected a large portion of Old Testament teaching about divorce. Zealous to earn their righteousness, they had memorized the entire Old Testament law. And yet, might I propose that if they had really wanted to know the truth from Jesus, instead of only asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? In other words, can I get away with this? They might have had a different perspective on Deuteronomy 24 if they had asked things like, how can God give us instructions about divorce but also tell us elsewhere in Malachi chapter 2 that he hates divorce. How do I reconcile these apparent contradictions? What does that contradiction tell me about God and his larger purposes in these matters? See, by seeking to know the lawgiver and not just the law through his word, they may have been able to see God's commands and that they always reveal his purposes. Those purposes then reveal more of his character to us. His instruction becomes relational, not just behavioral. And looking beyond the law to the lawgiver usually gives us a more experiential understanding of God by seeing his heart in the matter that we're asking about. When we see his heart... <laughs> will stand amazed at his unimpeachable character, faithfulness, and mercy. Unfortunately, the Pharisees' heart was to test him, not learn from him. And so they missed God's purposes and his self-revelation in the matter. As a result, they were not equipped to answer their own questions from God's word about divorce. They did it in a way that honored their Lip, that honored him with their lips, not with their hearts. The last time you faced a moral dilemma was your motivation to honor God with your lips or your heart. Did you consider both the commands of Scripture and also ask what was revealed about his character or purposes in this matter? Our big idea states, let God's purposes inform your heart to better experience his faithfulness and mercy. We should rest that when we don't test God but see his character revealed in Scripture, we will grow in godly character, and when we do, we become more like him. And the second point, I hope to encourage you in the, from the verses in five, uh, verses 5 through 9 to see God's character in marriage and divorce so you can better understand both God and marriage. Now, for those of you who are married, don't check out, or those of you who are not married right here, please don't check out on me on this second point. 
as I just alluded to, there's there's way more in this text. And when we look at things, we're not only looking at the issue, we're looking at God. So this in this text, Jesus defines God's purposes for marriage and divorce. And so in order to stay true to the primary teaching in this text, I'm limiting my comments to mostly just marriage and divorce. But don't think that this is all Jesus is teaching about. That's in and and please don't think that Jesus is teaching in order to fully know God, you have to be married. He's he's not saying that. And we know that to be a fact because Paul teaches us about the gift of singleness, which is a wonderful gift to the broader church, enabling you to serve more. He goes on to say, (laughs) for those who will marry, there will be trouble. That's why there's divorce in this text, right? Jesus himself in the parallel passage to this that we will look at later, Matthew 19, I think it is, uh, teaches that singleness is in fact a viable option for some. And of course, we know from the testimony of Jesus's own life that you can live a fully fulfilled life here on earth without marriage. Jesus was single and he was the most fully human person to walk the earth because he was not tainted by sin. He's the embodiment of God's original purposes for humanity, along with being our Lord and Savior. So we know that Jesus isn't teaching that you need to be married, but he is teaching a lot of other things. Some of them are connected to marriage, but they apply to everyone regardless of your marital status. I actually cut out, lucky for you, several pages of teaching about gender and sexuality that are direct implications of this text. Please consider how they also need to be dealt with using the principle for point one, that we need to look at God's purposes in things. In fact, Jesus does link in this text both gender and sexuality to the Garden of Eden to show their original purposes. Not surprisingly, God's purposes for both gender and sexuality are radically countercultural. And they are a subtext in God's purposes for marriage. But hardness of heart is taught in this passage. And it's affected all of our perspectives on a myriad of topics, not just marriage and divorce. So regardless of your marital status, this text can help show more of God's character to you. Verse 5, if you'd look at it with me, the text reads, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus answers the Pharisees' question about divorce by stating the original intent in the Garden of Eden for marriage. And he also gives the reason for Moses' allowance of divorce. Now, many godly and learned men have taught many different things from this passage. Sometimes it can seem like the church has just flip-flopped the coin back and forth, going from Do what makes you happy. That's God's will for you to for 
prohibiting marriage at all, or pro divorce at all cost. It's one side of the coin or other, one extreme or the other. And sometimes we create rules as we flip the coin back and forth. Sometimes we can create rules that trap an innocent party in a vicious cycle of abuse in order to not taint the sanctity of marriage. While these people's intentions to defend what God values is right, I do need to say that though your elders do affirm the covenantal importance of marriage, it's also not their, script, their position that Scripture categorically forbids divorce. Because of the hardness of heart that's taught in this passage, it's, and also in other New Testament places like 1 Corinthians 7, they believe that every circumstance is different and needs to be worked through individually. Hopefully leaning on the church body to bring encouragement when necessary, protection to the innocent, and calls for repentance and restoration from both the church body and the church governing authorities. Unfortunately, we know that sometimes this can lead to the conclusion that the covenant has been irreparably broken and that divorce is therefore biblically permissible even though I need to reiterate that is never desirable or God's intent this is also where the question brought up in this text about remarriage would be addressed and it would be done with the purpose for example it would say uh, the purpose for allowing or disallowing remarriage would be if there is the hope of gospel reconciliation to these broken relationships because that's what God does is restore and redeem. And that's what we want to reflect in our own relationships. That's another purpose or consideration with whether or not biblically it's permissible to remarry. Hopefully that makes it a little bit clearer. Commentator David Guzik notes that Jesus teaches the Mosaic law granting divorce was a concession to the hardness of your heart. It was never commanded by God, but just permitted because of the hardness of the offending party in cruelty of their unfailness, uh, unfaithfulness to their spouse. It was also permitted because of the hardness of the offended party being unable to perfectly forgive and restore a damaged relationship. Biblical counselor Jim Neuheiser, the American Center for Biblical Counseling, states biblical standards for divorce are actually designed to protect the innocent party. Rather than being left destitute and in bondage to her covenant-breaking husband, she could be set free presumably to find another husband who would take proper care of her. He continues that in Deuteronomy 24, the text we already talked about, her certificate of divorce would make it clear to all concerned that her former husband had no more claim on her. The New Testament for uh, permissions of divorce in the case of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse protected the innocent party. See, and that would be the nuance of remarriage, right? Unbelieving spouse, there's no hope of reconciliation because the gospel's not at work in this relationship. 
when we look at this section of scripture, we see God's character revealed in his heart for the vulnerable. Jesus cares very deeply about struggling marriages and for those who have felt the pain of divorce. You ask, how has God entered into my pain of my struggling marriage or my divorce in a personal way? Have you ever considered that God in the Old Testament, and these would be passages the Pharisees knew about, that he has experienced the sting of betrayal and divorce firsthand. In Jeremiah 3, God laments that because of the extreme hardness of heart and egregious breach of his covenant that he has made with his people, God expresses his grief over that broken covenant using the terms divorce and adultery. Isaiah 51 is similar in it, and it says, Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate divorce of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors to have I sold you to? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. But maybe the most complete and compelling text in the Old Testament about divorce is in the book of Hosea. Hosea is an Old Testament prophet, prophet book but you got to read it if you haven't. It's not full of uh, uh, woes being pronounced on nations that we have no idea where they fit on the map. It's an outlandish story of incredible betrayal and scandalous love. In it, God directs his prophet, the one who directly speaks for him, to marry Gomer, a woman who is chronically unfaithful to him. God is saying, Hosea, if you're going to be able to speak for me, you have to know the pain of betrayal and divorce and shattered covenants. When you experience that, you can finally speak for me to my people. Gomer is his wife's name. She's so chronically unfaithful to him that after many extramarital affairs, she willingly descends into prostitution. Eventually, when her value as a prostitute has been extinguished, she's sold at the slave market. The prophet's instruction to God or to, to Hosea reveal God's heart in divorce and remarriage. This book is something we'll revisit later, but it's a beautiful picture of God's character. And it reveals a God who grieves deeply about broken relationships and a God who has firsthand knowledge of the covenant effect, a covenant breaking effects of hardness of heart on marriage. So if you're not experiencing God's love in the ideal of marital unity, I do hope your soul can find companionship with a savior who has felt the sting of relational difficulties and that you can open yourself up to his church body for care. This is God's heart in the matter where sin brings suffering into marriage. Now, Jesus then turns his teaching from hardness of heart as the reason behind divorce to the reality that lack of understanding of God's purposes of marriage is what lies at the debate about divorce. As mentioned earlier, 
He's, his instruction takes us to the first marriage in the Garden of Eden, essentially saying, you don't understand divorce because you don't understand marriage. Look at me with the, uh, in the text from verse 6, please. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall be one flesh, and they were, are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Dave, commentator David Guzik notes, here, uh, it'll be the one here, there's a new overriding unity. I'm not sure if that's. Okay, I may not have had that there. Sorry about that. Um, David, uh, so God, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What, uh, this commentator notes, here there is a new overriding unity. I, I apologize for the confusion on the slides there. That's my fault. But the, he quotes, there's a new overriding unity. The bond between husband and wife should be even stronger than the bond between parent and child. The marriage bond should be stronger than the blood bond. Quote, the law of God was not that a man should forsake his wife whenever he had mind to, but that he should rather forsake his father and mother than his wife. Loving his wife as his own body. When you think of the concept of unity, so when marriage occurs, Jesus pronounces a breaking of the parental bond to form a new bond with the spouse. And he refers to that bond as having a one flesh unity. And that begs the question, when you think about unity, what comes to your mind? Well, one application directly from this text is that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There is a severing of the previous relationship with parents in order to elevate the new relationship. The goal is unity, and too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the stew. How much conflict in our lives has been caused by demands we might make on our adult children not accepting the reality that they are no longer primarily responsible to us? If you are on the younger spectrum, how much are you relying on or expecting too much from your parents or support, especially if you're married? Family is a gift from God and a primary means for us as we struggle through this fallen world. But our marriage relationship is first. We are one flesh and too much outside interference threatens that unity. This oneness also should affect with our relationships in our children that we still have in the home, who are both a gift and a responsibility. We can't allow our role as mother or father to eclipse our role as wife or husband. One day, hopefully, you will have an empty nest. And there needs to be a oneness that has grown throughout the child-raising years not a crisis that's caused from the departure of your children who were intended to leave. Your children are from you. They are not one with you. 
So how do we cultivate this unity, this oneness? Obviously, because of hardness of heart, it's not an easy task. But I do want to go back to the original question in in this section and ask, what does unity mean? Jesus says in verse 8, and the two will be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When we think about marriage relationships, our tendency can be to go straight to the text in Scripture that speak directly to marriage. Well, well that's, that's good because marriage is a very unique relationship. It's also good uh, that sometimes we, folk, that we focus on the bigger picture of Scripture. Sometimes focusing on the uniqueness of marriages of marriage causes us to miss the bigger picture. You see, when Paul describes in Ephesians 5 the reality that marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church, the preceding chapter he talks about unity within the church. Might it be that what builds unity within God's church the bride of Christ also would work to both define and build unity within our marriages. Uh, Paraphrasing Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that we build unity as we walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He then speaks about how God has given gifts to all and that they are used to build up that body, equipping one another for greater works. We are to put away falsehood and to speak the truth. We are to work hard so that we might have something to share. We are to use words that build up, not tear down, and be kind and tender-hearted to one another. Paul defines these gifts more in Romans chapter 12. I think I do have that here. When he exhorts the church to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with one another. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the Lord. Let me ask you, how would it affect our marriages if we all started with the ideal of treating your spouse like you are called to treat the person sitting in the pew next to you, your brother or sister? It sounds pretty tough, if not impossible, doesn't it? Because after all, you, you live with your spouse, not with the person next to you. But you see, might that be a part of God's greater purposes for marriage? Your marriage reflects his faithfulness, mercy, and love. And his character as we grow to love him more through what it pictures. And yes, on a practical level, marriage is the foundation for a stable society and for raising children. But the call to unity 
and our reflection of those lofty character traits required for that unity in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 also reflect our great need, doesn't it? See, too often we come to marriage expecting to be fulfilled. We want to be affirmed in our own wonderfulness that somebody loves me. We fall in love with how they make us feel. But our experience quickly becomes that we see each other's faults and failings and, and we have to forbear with one another. And, and that forbearance begins to threaten what we thought was unity because out of the hardness of our own hearts, we had unknowingly defined unity as the other person loving and affirming my greatness and my agenda. Let me ask you, when you think of your spouse, are they someone you treat as part of your own body, acknowledging that when they hurt, you hurt? When they thrive, you thrive? Or are they an obstacle to your plans and purposes, holding you back from achieving your desires, existing in essence to serve you? Might it be that part of God's plan of marriage for you is to expose the idols of your own heart? The good things that you might just want too much, so much that you're willing to either harm or neglect your spouse, your one flesh in order to gain them? Understanding that God gives gifts to, to benefit others do you actively encourage your spouse to use and develop their gifts? When you have a conflict like that, is it your goal to hear each other fully so that your unified body can move forward together? Or is it your goal to get your own way? It, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? That's because it is. And it's part of God's purpose for marriage, too. You see, in Ephesians 4, among the commands to build unity is the acknowledgement that we, we can't do these things unless we put off our old self and be, quote, created after the likeness of God. And the only way we can become more like God is to have his spirit put in us so that we become a new creation. Our need is not just to be married to Jesus. It is to be changed by him. Just as older married people begin to act and sometimes even look remarkably similar, we need to grow to be more like our ultimate bridegroom. When we come to this realization, we begin to better understand our big idea that we need to let God's purposes inform our own hearts so that we can better experience his faithfulness and mercy. We just saw that we need to see God's character in divorce and marriage to better understand both God and marriage. And we come to a point that we see our, th uh, that, that we see our third point, that our only hope is to trust the gospel to redeem and, and restore God's intended purposes. We pick our text back up in verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In the parallel text, Matthew 19, Jesus makes it clear, or, Mar or Matthew makes it clear that the disciples understand the impossible standard that Jesus is calling them to. After all, remember, the disciples are a part of their culture too. And their culture largely is permissive of divorce. Remember, even sometimes saying it was required in the name of religion. Matthew 19, verse 10 and 11 reads, The disciples asked him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. Jesus' last point is the gospel. <laughs> Here's what I mean. I mean, Jesus is saying, he answers their astonishment by saying, you're right. You can't experience marriage in the way it was intended because your sin has distorted everything. And that's why you love divorce. That's why I've come. See, remember, Paul says, you have to put off your old nature and put on your new nature. Now, it's kind of like this. Here we are wearing our own robe of works. But you see, our robe is stained with all sorts of maybe even good efforts that we failed at. But we keep wearing our robe and trying even harder and harder to do what is right, to do Ephesians 4, to do Romans 12. But ironically, as we do it, we fail and fail and just become more frustrated, throwing our hands up at our own failings, and it leads us to futility. It causes us to have lack of purpose. I can't follow God. It's too hard. I can't restore my marriage. It's too hard. Why? Because what I wear, my robe, is tainted with my hardness of heart. But Paul says, put off and put on. See, when Jesus answers with the gospel, it's twofold. He says, take off your righteousness and put on my righteousness. Where when God looks at you, he doesn't see the stain coat. He sees my righteousness. It's pure white. But church, it's better than that. You don't just have God's righteousness imputed to you so that God sees it. You have it imparted to you so that as you walk with him, as you grow with him, as you see his character and his purposes, his righteousness becomes part of you. Your character is changed so that from the inside out, you walk his righteousness. And it's no longer Christ's righteousness as God looks at you. It's Christ's righteousness inside of you. And so that out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So you become Ephesians 4. You don't just do Ephesians 4. That's God's heart for you. That's Jesus' point in the third point here. You can't do it. See, Jesus 
in Mark chapter in 12 or 10, 1, he's, remember, he's moving decisively to Jerusalem. This is what he's come for. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's larger purpose for Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God. The larger purpose of Israel's entire religious system, all of the sacrifices that they made to restore righteousness, all pointed to the larger purpose of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In days, Jesus is going to complete his passion because you don't get it. You love divorce because you don't understand that marriage reflects my mercy, my faithfulness, my love and care for you, and I am married to you. You see, Hosea is a wonderful picture of God's heart for the disenfranchised, for the vulnerable. But the bigger point of Hosea is that you and I are Gomer. We are Gomer. God has covenantally promised himself to us. And we have prostituted ourselves and chased after our own idols. And it shows in our marriages. And it shows in all of our relationships, doesn't it? But in our unfaithfulness, it didn't cause God to give us a certificate of divorce and send us away to hell where he should have. Instead, like Hosea, he brought his wayward wife back from the slave market. See, in, in Romans, Paul says that we are slaves to sin. It's an incredible continuity of message, isn't it? Only God can weave stories through Scripture like this. Anything you give yourself to enslaves you. And when you give yourself to, quote, the passions of your flesh because of the hardness of your heart, you are not being free from God's rules. You're being enslaved to your passions. But God wants to set you free because he is the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. And in Mark 2, Jesus is our bridegroom. we get his robe of righteousness. Now, regardless of your current marriage status, single, married, divorced, remarried, Jesus has decisively fulfilled the purposes of God to restore his intended purposes for humanity through faith in Christ's atoning work at the cross. And he hasn't left us alone, but has left of his spirit to help us in our weaknesses and to build unity in his church as a subtext also in our marriages. I'm not saying that your struggles go away if you just trust Jesus. I'm saying that you do serve a Savior who has overcome those struggles and that he actively walks with you through your own struggles and that those struggles are a part of your dying to self so that you can more fully love him, your ultimate 
bridegroom. You see, this is off the text. When, when we're exhorted, take up your cross and follow me. He's not saying pick up your burden so that you can bring something to the table. He's saying you have to be crucified or else you're no good because your hardness of heart makes it so you can't do anything until you die to self and allow me to raise you back to life. He is our ultimate bridegroom. He brings me a new heart so that I can live more fulfilled. As my heart is softened, I can better reflect Jesus as a mini bridegroom, as a father, as a leader in my workplace, as a member of this body in any role. Understanding these roles point to a greater reality helps me have purpose in them. And that's why God cares about how we get use our gifts like marriage. Church, he loves his bride. That's why we are to love one another. It's what he's made us for. That's God's purpose for marriage, to reveal his love and his faithfulness, his mercy and our need. No matter what your experience is in marriage, divorce, singleness, or remarriage, come to him. His purposes will never disappoint. What then shall we say to these things? We opened with this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And remember, Paul ends Romans 8 with the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.